So I'm going to speak in two parts this morning. The first part, I want to look at covenant. Uh, not be too long doing that. And then we're going to break bread together to recognize the wonder of God's promises. And then I'm going to unpack a bit on sonship, which is the sort of second part of this section of Galatians. So in verse 6, we heard, we heard that phrase, consider Abraham. So I just want to consider Abraham in one particular aspect. And I'm going to assume that you're all fairly familiar with the passage. If you're not very familiar with it, I do encourage you, read and reread the book of Galatians. It is so in your face and real and living. Read it in different versions. Read it in the message. Read it in the New Living Translation. Read it in the NIV. Read it in the Authorized, whatever. But try and get what it is that Paul is saying, because it's so radical and so real. Um, I've enjoyed just reading it and reading it and listening to it. So consider Abraham. Now, you may remember that uh, way back, Abraham was given a promise by God, and it's, we're told about it in Genesis chapter 12. And he was 75 at the time, and God made this great promise to him. Ten years passed, there was still no sign of the promises coming to pass, but Abraham remained faithful. He still trusted God. But then God spoke to him again, and this you can read in Genesis 15. And God said, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield and your reward will be great. And Abraham questioned God. He said, I have no heir. How can it be that my children are going to be like the sand on the sea? I haven't got an heir. I haven't got any children. So God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He said, Go and get a heifer, a calf that's three years old, and a goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these, and he cut them in half, the three animals, he left the birds intact, and laid each half against each other, so one half here, one half there. And birds of prey came to come to the meat. And Abraham worked hard at shooing them off and making sure that this meat was clean. Because he wanted to make this covenant with God. Because God had said, I want to make a covenant with you. And then it says this in Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord spoke to him promises. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land, and they'll be afflicted 400 years. But afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. You'll go to your fathers in peace, and they'll come back here in the fourth generation. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the carcasses. And on that day, it says in scripture, the Lord made covenant with Abraham saying, to your seed, to your offering, I give this land. So 
Strange, isn't it? We're not in that culture, so we don't understand. But in those days, covenants were made between people using sacrifices. So in this case, there was a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and two birds. And what people did is they want to make a covenant. I'm going to do this for you. You know, we agree this thing. They would cut an animal in half. And then the two people who made the covenant would walk between the two halves and making a promise together. We're agreeing this, aren't we? Yes. And by doing that, they're saying, if I don't keep this promise, I'm as good as cut off. (laughs) I'm rubbish. You can leave me to my enemies. You can leave me to the birds of the air. The covenant is over. So the two people have to walk through the sacrifice. That's how God did it with Abraham. He said, I want to make a covenant with you. Abraham, get it ready. Are you ready? We're going to make this promise together. And then Abraham, this huge, deep sleep came over him. He never walked through. Abraham never walked through. But God did. That's what Galatians is saying. God has made a promise with us that needs nothing from us. What a relief. The covenant was made. God was there. His presence, this burning fire, moved through these animals. God said, I'm walking this covenant. My promise is sure. It will happen. And when you think to when did deep sleep come on people? There was deep sleep, wasn't there, in Gethsemane. The disciples couldn't stay awake. And God was making a new covenant with mankind. There was a horror of darkness at that time in Gethsemane. And Jesus even was crying out, wasn't he? Because of the darkness. God made a covenant. And man had nothing to do with it. The other time we read of a deep sleep, there was a few occasions, was when Eve was created. And a deep sleep fell on Adam. And God created something new, Eve. In Hebrews 6, it talks about this event, but in slightly different words. It says, when we make a vow, we use other people greater than us to ratify it. So that still happens today, doesn't it? You have to go and see a a solicitor or a GP or someone who's more important than you and me, to sort of ratify your signature on a document or something like that. We do that today, don't we? But it says in Hebrews 6, when God made his promise to Abraham, he made a vow to do what he promised. But since there was no one greater than himself, he used his own name when he made his vow. He said, I promise you that I'll bless you to give you many descendants. And Abraham was patient and received what God had promised. God wanted to make it clear that he would never change his purpose. So he added his vow to the promise. And so we can hold firmly to the hope placed before us. As it says in Hebrews, we have this hope 
as an anchor to our lives. I just think that's a staggering picture of God's covenant. (laughs) And we're going to break bread now. It's a staggering picture of God's covenant. Because what God has done, and this is what Galatians is screaming at us, is so unique and so wonderful, and we cannot add to it. We are just the beneficiaries. Bless God. Because we can't. (laughs) As has been emphasized over the last few weeks, it's about rescue. And Mark has been explaining that really well about rescue. And I I was trying to think afterwards, what is the only thing that you have to do when you're being rescued? I thought of two examples. One is you're in the water and I think Marky used that example. He said, when you're, when you're drowning, you don't want someone to throw you a book saying how to swim. <laughs> you're drowning. You need someone to rescue you. Or if you're on a cliff face, you've fallen off a cliff and you're trying to climb and you can't, you're stuck. You need someone to get hold of you and take you off the cliff face. The only thing we can do is let go. <laughs> let go of whatever it is you're holding on to and let someone do the work for you. That's rescue, isn't it? It's not me doing anything. It's saying, oh, I can't do it anymore. Help. <laughs> Rescue. That's what God's done for us. That's what Paul is so passionate about. Rescue. So now we'll have a break. And we're going to break bread together and have communion. And the reason I want to do that is so that we ground ourselves in this fact That God has done everything to call us to himself. It's a promise. It's a promise that he accepts us. He loves us. He cares for us. We're not abandoned, but he's here to rescue. Thank you. It's strong language, isn't it? I fear for you, I've wasted my effort on you. What a thing for an apostle to say to the church. And not many years after Jesus had died. (laughs) We're now 2,000 years later. How easy it is for us to get it wrong. And one of the things that I've been challenged about, and I can't say I've got all the answers, is, God, what are you saying that I'm so foolish about? (laughs) Where am I missing the point? So I'm inviting us really to ask that question of ourselves. So ask is of God because he's our father. Say, where are we getting it wrong if we're getting it wrong? So we're looking at sonship here. I just want to say to start with that it's, it's sonship, which is male. I appreciate that. But it's because of the culture at the time. It, it's reflecting the culture of the time. Because daughters could not be legal heirs. So the Bible is using the male sonship because that's what was so very, very relevant at the time. But if we read, well, we have read at the end of chapter 3, it says there's no male nor feeble in God. So I don't want us to get things wrong there. This is for everybody. Okay, so male or female, you can be a son of God. But the language is strong. 
because an heir at that time meant such a lot. So in verse 5 we heard, we might receive adoption to sonship. That was a legal term at the time that this was written. So a wealthy person could take a slave and then adopt them. And so then, once adopted, that adopted person had all the privileges of a son and heir, which is remarkable. So it meant two things. It meant that they were released from slavery within the household, but also they legally became the son and heir of everything that the person owned. That's amazing. Because you are his sons, it says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. No longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. I was lying down yesterday, I thought... I can't take this in. How can I, how can you, how can we not just be believers, not just be loved by God, but a son and heir? It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. What God is saying, everything I have is yours. And this isn't the language of religion or of rules or ceremonies and special ways of doing things, is it? (laughs) Being a son doesn't seem to fit into that category. Sonship is all about relationship. I'll ask the question, are you a son of God? Have you meditated on that? That God's done something so much in you that you know that actually God has become your father, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amazing. We need it. You're born into something magnificent, which was never the experience before then. And that's the invitation. That's the covenant that we celebrated. God's inviting us into this relationship with God. I want to pick on a phrase that we heard in verse 9. So I'm just going to read out those first few verses, uh, 9 to 11, I'm going to read out again. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you turn back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts. And I was very struck that Paul says, now that you know God, and then he says, No, rather that you're known by God. 
And in the original, that's a very definite emphasis. Now that you know God, no, no, no. Much more importantly, much more wonderfully, that you're known by God. And I thought, well, surely we're all known by God, aren't we? He created us. He knows everything about me. But this is saying that may not be true. And I suppose the question came to me, and I'm putting it to you. It's not just about our knowing God. It's about, does he know you? There has to be an honesty there, doesn't there? And a transparency. That Father God knows me. Knows the bits about me that I'm not very happy with. Knows the bits about me I struggle with. Because then it turns into a relationship rather than a law thing and my performance. Because actually, he knows me. And I know he knows me. And he still loves me. Are you known by God? You see, because Adam and Eve, what we read about is that they hid from God. And that's our tendency, isn't it? To hide ourselves from God. And soberingly, Jesus talks about it. So he said, lots of people will say to me, Lord, Lord, we've prophesied, we've cast out devils, we've seen amazing miracles, but I'll say to them, I never knew you. And the next verse, it says, the foolish man built his house on sand. Back into the foolishness, O oh foolish Galatians. And the foolish man is one who heard, but it wasn't real to him. He didn't do it. It wasn't his experience. And then in the parable of the virgins, you know that story? Can you remember that? The ten virgins, five were good, five were foolish. And the foolish ones came to the door and, the bride, and knocked on the door And said, let us in, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But the bridegroom replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. The foolish ones weren't known by God. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, are you so foolish? Don't you know that you not only can know God, but he can know you? And one of the privileges of parenthood I've discovered as the kids grow up, is that you grow a different relationship with them. So they're not just kids who are hiding things from you, because we've all done that with our parents, haven't we? <laughs> Hid, hidden things from our mums and dads. But when it gets to the point where actually your son treats you as a friend and trusts you, that's a different relationship, isn't it? And I imagine in this culture back then that when the father, when the son came of age and became the heir, what the father was saying is, you're not just my kid anymore who I have to discipline and you're under tutors and this kind of thing which we read about in Galatians, but now I'm sharing my life with you. Let's partner together in our business. You help me on the farm You help me with my workshop. You help me with what I'm doing. Let's do this in partnership, 
Father, Son, together. And it seems to me that's what this is getting at. So nothing's hidden anymore. So the Father can say to the Son, here's the books, here's the money, let's do this together, let's go into business. I gather the Austin Healy Company is quite a good example of that, but I don't know much more than that. If you're a car fan, you can find out. And that's what I believe it means to live in the Spirit, which is what the encouragement in is here. Don't live by laws, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. But it's relationship where actually we're walking with the Father in a relationship. So we do what he says, he listens to us. It's striking back then with Abraham. God said, I've promised you this. And Abraham said, yeah, but I don't understand because of this. Abraham was God's friend. <laughs> and sometimes when I, I have prayer days, as you may know, cause to pray for the church and you guys and a few other things, and sometimes I really struggle with that. And I think, oh, why, why am I doing this? I, don't, I can't feel God's presence. I don't know he's there. And then sometimes it comes to me, it did this week, but God's my father. I can just talk to him. <laughs> it doesn't have to be special. I don't have to put on special air and grace. I talk to him. And thank God, if he wants to, he can talk to me. Yes? So it's about attitude, isn't it? It's about relationship. It's not about legal things. There's a theologian called Richard Lovelace. He says some interesting stuff. Listen to this. See what you think. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their spiritual achievements are subconsciously, radically insecure. Much less secure than non-Christians. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin can grow out of their insecurity. He then says too, this disease of cheap grace can produce some of the most selfish and contentious leaders and lay people on earth. <laughs> Oops. The self-righteous. Because if we live by grace, we don't have to work for it. And actually, it's a different life. I want to repeat a Tim Keller quote that Mark used. The gospel, the good news, is this message that we're more wicked than we ever dared to believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Now we've been in the Old Testament already. I want to use another Old Testament story to try and put a picture on this passage in Galatians. And the character I've, I want to look at is someone called Asa. It's a father-son relationship because he had a father called Abijah. And you can read about them in 2 Chronicles, 13 to 16. And the reason, I just want to pick on him because I've been reading about him this week and it kind of, well, it convicted me, actually. So I'm just sharing where I've been at. Hope it helps us. 
because Asa, had a, Asa was the great-grandchild of Solomon, okay, to give you an idea of where he was. So he was in the line of David, and he was a good king. His father, Abijah, he was also a good king, king of Judah. By this time, Israel had split off, and Judah was the, was the tribe that was following God. And when Abijah, he was the king of Judah, was in a battle, he was being attacked by Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel. And it says in 2 Chronicles 13 that the number of troops that Jeroboam had was twice the number that Abijah had. Asa would have been there. His father was the king. This was a difficult battle. And Abijah stood on the mountain and cried out to Jeroboam like this. Listen to me. The Lord is our God. We've not forsaken him. Don't fight against God. Battle commenced. It went badly. And Abijah recognized that he had his enemies in front of him and behind him. So scripture says, they cried out to the Lord. And God routed Jeroboam. And they were victorious because they relied on the Lord. That's amazing. The odds were against them, but they were victorious because they relied on the Lord. A little while later, Asa becomes the king. So that was his father's battle. This is now Asa. He had an army of just over 500,000. But then the Ethiopian army came against him. And it says that their army was vast. Some translations say it was over a million. It's always difficult to know with the Old Testament exactly what the numbers mean, by the way. So let's not go into that. But it was at least twice the size. Again, a bit like his father. Father-son relationship here. Here's Asa. There's an army twice the size come against him. And it says in 2 Chronicles 14, Asa cried, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians who fled. Another amazing battle. Nice stories, you say. When Asa was older, another battle loomed. This was King Baasha of Israel who was attacking this time. And it says, Asa took gold from the temple and bribed King Ben-Hadad of Syria, who was supporting Israel. Different. And God sent a prophet to Asa and said, the prophet said, because you relied on the king of Syria and didn't rely on the Lord your God, The army of Syria has escaped you. Don't you remember the huge Ethiopian and Libyan armies? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this from now on you will have wars. He was a fool. (laughs) Because somehow, he'd seen something, but with age, he'd slipped back into doing things through his own strength. Wake up, Pete. (laughs) Oh, foolish Galatians. 
Interestingly, the following verses about Asa say this. He got a serious disease in his feet. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. He died two years later. And for me and Chris, that's a very relevant verse. Where's our trust? Who are we looking to? (laughs) Whose advice are we taking? It's the fool who says, there is no God. And it seems as if Paul is saying, if you go down this route, you're actually saying there is no God. Because God doesn't know you. You're foolish. You're relying on your own strength. There is no God anymore. Chapter 5, which we'll look at after the weekend, starts, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So the theme for the day is the gospel is not just A, B, C, it's A to Z. Or as Marky put it, A to Z, which really made me laugh. So I've got a few questions, difficult to know which questions to ask. But I suppose I'm asking, do you know God? Personally? Really? In the way he wants to be known? As your father? So that you have a relationship with him that's absolutely real and honest and transparent. So you know him and he knows you. Do you? Because that's the covenant he opened up for us. That we can know him. Even though we know what we're like. Wonderful. That's the gospel. Rescue. But have I become foolish? Because actually I've learnt... Or I think I've learnt, because I'm a bit older, that I have to do some things myself. (laughs) Having begun in the Spirit, am I now living by human effort? As Paul puts it. Am I living in the light of God's extraordinary covenant? Am I living in the light of being a son, an heir of God in Christ? I feel as if I need to sit down and meditate on that for weeks. (laughs) Or have I reverted back to an idea that God is not enough? That somehow, yeah, he's not enough. Marky asked a question when he spoke a couple of weeks ago and it hit me. He said, have we become bored with the gospel? I thought, Marky, what are you saying? Have you become bored with the gospel? But I've been thinking about that. If we have no God, then you kind of get bored with it. (laughs) If we say there is no God, if we move away from the radical, transformative, glorious power of what God has done for us, which is the good news, then it can become boring. It becomes religious. It's not real.
What I'd like us to do is actually invite us seriously over the coming week just to say, God, then show me again if I've forgotten. Forgive me if I've got it wrong. But please, restore me and restore us as a church to that place where we live in the Spirit and see God, what God wants to do instead of thinking we've got to do it like this or being governed by how we've done it in the past, or whatever it might be. But just that openness, say, God, you are God. I don't want to be a fool. (laughs) I don't want us as a church to be foolish. Could be a good, great, great weekend, couldn't it, if we talked about some of these things. Not just talked about it, but fellowshiped about it, if I could put it like that. Bringing God into it, into those conversations. Hmm. Can I pray? Lord, we're here, sitting here on a Sunday morning, because actually there's something about the truth that has grabbed us. And my prayer, our cry to you this morning is, Lord, if we've in any way lost some of the impact of that truth, please, God, forgive us and rescue us again. Lead us into the wonder of your truth. Not just so we know it, God, but so this world that so needs you can know you, God. The people we work with, people in our families, people who live in our neighborhood, people who we think are impossible, Lord, you have come to rescue them. God, forgive us and God, lead us into your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.